I'm no longer a believer that you've got to burn the midnight oil to build a fast growing, highly valuable startup, wherever you may be. What I've experienced several times is that a company's founder creates the amount of time the company needs from them. As a founder, you're going to spend 100 hours a week building the business. Then all the systems, all the expectations, all the processes that you've built around you requires that 100 hours from you. Now, you may love that. Go for it, right? But you also may burn yourself out. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 12345678910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Method Podcast, or welcome back to the Business Method Podcast. We have a treat for you today. Patrick Comer, he is the founder of Lucid. Lucid is a question and answers ecosystem, a type of a network business that connects data results with 
companies in the marketplace, so agencies, brands, and other organizations that need survey responses can connect directly with suppliers who provide those respondents. It is a genius idea. If you guys remember recently, we interviewed Richard Kosh from the 8020 principle, and he talks about Uber is a network business. Airbnb is a network business. These network businesses are connecting the business with clients very easily by just having an app or platform to connect those. And it's proven to be incredibly lucrative and very successful in today's online driven world. And um, as part of this series, we're interviewing a lot of eight-figure entrepreneurs getting behind the mindset of eight-figure entrepreneurship. And he just told me that last year he moved from the eight-figure entrepreneur category to the nine-figure uh, entrepreneur category. But that's okay. We'll still interview you. We'll still we we'll still love to pick your brain. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, Chris, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I think that mindset and thinking about how you make these transitions as a business scales and grows is pretty important. And it's also a challenge, I think, often for founders to know what's important as your business scales for everyone to be focused on. So I, I appreciate the theme and the format of this, but also the opportunity to talk a little bit about Lucid uh, and also talk a little bit about how um, I've gone from, you know, 10 million in revenue, maybe uh, six or seven years ago to crossing the $100 million revenue in 2020. So excited to be a part of the story. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. And it always amazes me that mindset or just the journey of an entrepreneur going from, you know, zero or wherever they start out at to hitting the six figures and seven figures and mid seven figures and eight and then on and on and on. And also their vision of the future of that, like how long can a lot of founders, because some founders are the type of founders that can stick around for three years and then they have to get out and start something new. And some founders are like, nope, 40 years, baby, this is, I got this, we're taking Lucid to the moon. So I'd love to chat about that. But um, I don't know a, a lot about your background. Did you grow up sure. in an entrepreneurial family? As it turns out, my father is a, a priest, an Episcopalian priest. And so uh, I grew yeah. up, uh, you know, uh, traveling around with him in, in church. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is that my background, you know, from a university standpoint, I have a degree in theater and a degree in music. Uh, oh, this but as is it turns great. Out, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no skills coming out of university or college it's, it's in terms beautiful. of I didn't yeah. take a single accounting class, economic, finance, yes. I, <laughs> I no <love> business <laughs> classes. Um, but what happened is I moved to New York City to follow my dream as it is the heartbeat of, you know, Broadway. And I, I was a theatrical carpenter for a number of years. But at that time in the late 90s is when the internet really happened, right? Mm -hmm. Netscape went public and Silicon Alley was coined. And there were a lot of people in the early 20s like myself who thought we could also add .com to something and raise a bunch of money and figure it out. I was lucky enough to be involved with an early company in the .com era called GovWorks. Okay. And since then, I've been in technology startups, mostly in, in the B2B space, but really focused on how do you grow uh, from an idea to really real revenue in the 10 to $20 million space? Luckily here with Lucid now in New Orleans, I've had the opportunity to be the scaling CEO. As you start out there, there are a lot of CEOs who love the startup time. And I got to right. tell you, that's probably the most fun as CEO is like the first uh, hires, like all the way from zero to maybe 30 hires. And that could be any number of level, uh, revenue levels that, that, that make that possible. Hmm. And some entrepreneurs think that's the best place to be and want to get out as soon as you start crossing over. 
Um, I'd been there a number of times and I really wanted to prove to myself, uh, prove to those around me and also prove to those investors who took a risk that I could also be the scaling CEO, that right. I could take it to 100 employees to 500 employees and do that successfully. Well, it's really interesting. So you started out going into theater and music. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs start off knowing as a young age, they're kind of entrepreneurial. Maybe they're selling golf balls or lemonade, you know, at an early age or starting a, a, a business kind of right out of college. But it took you a while to kind of develop that. Did you maybe have that in the back of your mind when you were younger? Or did when did you realize, hey, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur? The, the concept of entrepreneurship and business just wasn't the lingua franca of my childhood or growing up. It wasn't something that we were thinking about really. Uh -huh. um, the only version of entrepreneurship that I had is I was always creating the next club. I was always present. For example, I remember starting the debate club in high school or in, in college starting the next theater troupe or really wanting to be the leader, wanting to be the director, wanting to be the, the um, kind of instigator as it were uh -huh. of, of something new. Um, but it wasn't until the internet really popped that e-commerce and the dot-com revolution occurred that I realized something is really magical happening here. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be a part of that story. And it was the, I guess, builder in me, that the native builder that had not been focused on business before that really gave me the opportunity to shine. But I started one of our first projects um, early in the dot-com era with my brother, and he brought me in uh, because I could talk, right? He was the engineer and I was the brother with the theater degree and I could stand up in theory in front of investors and say things where he wanted to make the, the back end work. So um, as the front man, I started to learn how to talk about business, how to talk about financing and the rest. So I would love to say that I had a lemonade stand in my backyard for years and earning nickels and, and building something up, but that was just not my focus early on. So... Is Lucid the first business that you founded? No, I've been involved okay. with a number of different startups over okay. the past 20 some odd years. Yeah. Okay. And then where did the idea from Lucid come? And what made you think this would be like a, a, a key type of business that would take off? Well, I thought Lucid was going to be successful because the market research industry, and when you think market research, think surveys and right. polls, for example, right. and uh, that that industry was very similar to the way the advertising industry worked. Mm -hmm. So when I was in New York in the turn of the millennia, I saw the beginnings of the digital revolution in advertising, mm -hmm. where digital ads became a thing. Uh, these were companies early like Avenue A and Razorfish. Right. And they started not only creating digital ads, but started creating new business models. Things like DoubleClick, where now there are exchanges and marketplaces where ads are made and placed in, in fractions of milliseconds on websites globally every day. I had seen that evolution and had started to work in the market research space in Los Angeles and realized that there is a high correlation between these two industries, how they worked, but there was no digital revolution necessarily happening at scale um, on the market research side. Mm -hmm. So... I moved to New Orleans because I got married to someone from New Orleans. And that often happens down here where she's the youngest of 12. And guess what? We're living in New Orleans. Now. So <laughs> yeah. started this company because I needed and wanted to start a new, uh, a new job, a new, a new company down here. And the basic concept is that we could port this concept of a marketplace mm -hmm. and move it into the market research space and really take the programmatic uh, scaling that we'd seen uh, through ad tech and martech and 
point it to research. And that, of course, has become ResTech as, as everything becomes something tech these days. Right. Did you start off with investments for Lucid or did you come in just bootstrapping? Um, I raised a couple hundred thousand dollars out of the gate. Mm -hmm. uh, friends and family and a couple of local angels who were willing to take a, a gambit with me. Uh, but I got really lucky. Our first year, we did around 1.5 million in revenue. And the following year, we did six. Uh, but that was mainly because I had the Rolodex and experience in the industry for about seven years prior. So I was able to port that over a bit and move forward. So you said in 2020, you just hit 100 million. Yeah. Um, in 2018, the stats I read, you had 250 employees, offices in New York, London, Delhi, Sydney, Singapore. Is that all still up to date? Well, whatever an office means today, we're about to find out. That's right. <laughs> we that's have true. we have employees located in a bunch of countries globally. You know, we have a, obviously a large North America presence here based out of New Orleans, but we have a huge team in London. Uh -huh. uh, a rather large team based out of uh, Delhi as well and scattered across APAC and other places, probably about 14 or so different countries represented now. Nice. So I'd like to know, you know, as you started out your first year hitting seven figures, which is pretty awesome. Um, as you went from seven figures to mid seven to eight, um, even into nine, was there a shift in mindset for you? Because you, you guys started in 2010, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so you're 11 years old, almost 11 years old. What was that shift in mindset for you? And what were some of the benchmarks that, that went along with that? I think you mentioned 20 million was significant for you as well. I think, well, benchmark number one was probably raising our Series A round after the first 18 months. So okay. we raised just shy of $3 million in 2011. Okay. Um, from uh, from Sopris Capital based out of New York. And I think one of the key things that every entrepreneur goes through is out of the gate, you are the jack of all trades, you're doing everything mm -hmm. as the founder. Obviously you have uh, some skills and experiences that are relevant to some aspects of the role. Um, but I found myself trying to figure out how to juggle well out of the gate there's too many balls. And if I tried to juggle them all at once, I was definitely going to drop a few. And some of those may be quite problematic. So I had to learn how to focus on the few things that had to be done right now versus all the things that I might be doing. Mm -hmm. Once we got to say 20 million in revenue, the 15, $20 million range, um, it started to be less about what I was capable of doing every day and what the team was capable of doing, whether that is hiring the right people, whether that is creating the right processes, which I'm sure every entrepreneur loves to talk about, <laughs> but um, really just thinking about how am I creating the environment where the team can be successful versus the environment where I'm successful in the job? Because it's less about what I do. The success of the business is in the hands of the people around me. And that becomes more and more true as, it, as the company's gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah. Do you, um, and then was, do you feel there was a mindset shift when you got past 20 million, say, you know, 50, 60, 70 million, closer to a hundred million? You know, we spent a few years between 2011 until 2017 before we raised our $60 million series B, which mm -hmm. was led by guidepost growth equity out of Boston. Um, and really by, we got, by the time we got to the series B, I'd gone through this transformation where everything that I had been good at in a role before, I now 
brought on someone else who is better than me and far more capable. Yeah. And I think at that time, the CEO's job is to figure out what the CEO's job is every six months or so, maybe every quarter, every six months, because it's constantly evolving as the, as the company scales up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the mindset is really, how do I spend my time advancing the needs of the organization? And that can scale and change rapidly on a, on a you know, quarterly, you know, six month basis. But also the other mindset is, are we doing the right things today in order to build the business for the next three to five years? Okay. What are we missing about today that is going to be important in two years that we haven't started yet? And if we don't start now, we've got a problem, but the rest of the company probably doesn't see it yet because they're focused on this quarter, you know, this month, today's activities. Yeah. Um, in regards to replacing not only yourself, but replacing key people or, or finding the key people that can run the operations of the business, what are ways that you do that? Because I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and execs who have a challenge replacing themselves so they can focus on different roles in the business um, or finding key executives to manage and run the business um, that come from outside the company. So I'm just kind of curious, like, where are you finding the talent to, to put in a higher level roles for Lucid? I think I've been extraordinarily lucky in terms of the quality of hiring and the capability of the team around me. Okay. Um, at the same time, I tend to manage through trust and also the fundamental belief that everyone that works with me can achieve a new level of excellence above what they've done in the past mm-hmm. and maybe several levels up. So giving people the opportunity to really spread their wings and show you what they're capable of can create some fantastic results. And this is something I learned from my theatrical past. Mm-hmm is if you ask people for their most creative uh, performances and you give them the, the trust and safety in the environment to perform at a new level, they will often exceed your expectations. So if you create that environment, people can have the opportunity to succeed at the right. highest level of say awesome that they're capable of. But if you don't give them an opportunity, they will only perform at the level that you've given them access to. So early on, I didn't have a lot of access to experienced entrepreneurial management talent mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. The startup based out of New Orleans, so the talent pool is radically different than, say, California. Right. And so it's really about inspiring people to do things they never thought they could do in the past. They really spread their wings and, and blossom. A, a, a tremendous example of that is our founding CFO, Christy Luquire, mm-hmm. uh, was with the business for five or six years, led us through our initial financing rounds. Um, she had been with Wells Fargo as an investment banker and really said, I want to try to do this. And she knew more about banking and, and, and everything else than I did. So let, let's go for it. And she developed and grew with me over several years. Of course, there was a moment when it was time for her to move on personally and professionally and were able to bring in, you know, a more qualified, more experienced CFO. Yeah. But she definitely led the team in a tremendous way for a number of years. So you've been growing this company for 11 years. What's your vision for the next decade? Can you keep growing it? running how you're running for another 10 years? I honestly am at my most excited point in the development of this business than, in, than since it was in, in, incepted back wow. 11 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, mainly because we had a vision for where not only Lucid could be, but where our entire industry could go. Uh-huh. 
And now 10 years later, not only has Lucid developed into one of the primary players in ResTech and leading the digital transformation of market research, there are several other companies that are part of that transformation as well. And the next 10 years are gonna be even more interesting than the first 10, because we're no longer proving our point. Right. We're now experimenting and developing the vision of the future. Because yeah. the first 10 years was a lot of sand uphill, uh, pushing and pushing, a, a, like Sisyphus, just pushing that stone and rolls back a little, keep pushing. That's what it's like. We've yeah. now crossed over the top and it's rolling downhill a bit. Uh-huh. And that's an exciting thing to see happen. And a lot of times when you're talking to investors, they can see how your business can grow within the current market, you know, from one to three times the current size. But once you've actually changed the belief of an industry that can do something radically different, mm-hmm. suddenly our market opportunity has grown by 10, 20, 30 X in the past couple of years. As people's expectations of what they can achieve through data collection, through insights, through surveys has just radically changed. So honestly, I'm excited. I was told many times it's a marathon, not a, not a sprint and a 10 year, like when was the last time you worked at a, a company for more than 10 years, right? That's a long Never. stretch. Yeah, right? yeah Most people time. don't work that long in a single firm. So okay. you have to find that spark of excitement, that spark of raison d'etre, that reason why you're here, uh-huh. be, besides the fact that you're the founding CEO and are passionate about it. And digging deeper into that well all the time is challenging, but immensely satisfying. So when you do come up to that quote unquote wall or challenging time and you need to dig deeper um, to find that spark and reignite that, like that's just something that we have to do in all long-term relationships, Mm -hmm. whether it's owning a business, marriage, whatever. What's the process for you look like? Well, I think it took me a long time to recognize when I was bored And to be okay with not being satisfied with my job, which is a really weird thing for the founder and CEO to be okay with, right? Uh Because aren't all employees supposed to be super happy in their job all the time, (laughs) much less the CEO, right? So so the, the, the first step is saying it's really normal and okay for the CEO to wake up one day and be like, ugh. Really? Right? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's okay. I think that's really step one. I'm oh, like, so glad know you said that. that yeah. <laughs> it's okay. And to recognize, wait a minute, I'm, what, what am I doing? What is going And so um, letting go of having to be the super rah-rah leader, visionary person every single day, even for yourself and let it be, okay, today I'm not really excited about this. Right. Yeah. And I should be excited because it's doing well and or, or whatever, but I haven't found the, the excitement level today. So I guess that's step one is recognition, right? And being okay with it and letting it take the time necessary to simmer. You don't have to be resolving it today. Um, and at a certain size, the company is kind of running itself. So you can spend the time, and this is probably the most important bit, take the time necessary to figure out what the job is now, what you love about that job, and go get interested in and go execute that new part of your role you didn't know existed before. Right. And sometimes it can take a while. It can take some time for you to find that spark of interest in the thing you're doing again. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that completely. Um, sometimes like I'll, I'll become just completely complacent about the business and I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? You know, what did I do over the past X amount of years? Um, and even podcasting as well, you know, it's yeah. like, cause we're over 400 episodes now. 
Um, it's like, huh? bless you. Yeah. <laughs> <is a> lot, <laughs> I know, you know, and it's like, oh, another interview, another interview, another interview. And then I get into the interviews and I always end up really enjoying it because right. I just get a spark of knowledge from interviewing that person and the conversation always turns out really good. But, uh, I think recognizing and accepting that that's part of the process of long-term growth, long-term um, being in a business long-term, any type of relationship long-term, like you're going to have some lower times and it's okay. Right. And maybe even having conversations like this with other people that go through similar things is also something I, that can really help people. I'll double click right on that. I, um, joined, uh, both entrepreneur organization and now uh, YPO where oh, yeah. other CEOs and leaders put together really forums and small groups to uh -huh. let them have a safe space to talk about all the things that are going on, whether it's business or family or personal or otherwise. And I found that to be incredibly valuable, not only for my own personal, emotional life sanity, uh, but also really learning from other skilled professionals, how they handle various things as they come up. Yeah. Um, because as you probably heard many times, the founder and CEO can be an extraordinarily lonely journey. Mm -hmm. And when things are challenging, who do you get to, dare I say, complain to? Is it the board? Is it the investors? Is it the, the team around you? You know, where do you go to find a common ground with someone to really talk about what's going on in a safe environment? And I found engagement with other um, CEOs and executives um, in those environments to be extraordinarily valuable. So do you think you can grow this into a billion dollar company, Lucid? Well, that's the plan. Like literally we are putting together our strategy for growing to a billion dollars of revenue in the next five years. Nice. When you hit a billion, come back on the podcast. I'll please. come back. I'll come back and tell you what were the mindset shifts to go from a hundred yes. to a billion, right? Well, that's the next series. We want to do a hundred people that have been, uh, built right. billion dollar companies. So that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So that's fascinating. Okay. So I'd like to know more about kind of, What's your daily habits are like, your daily routines, how you operate on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you have a, a daily routine that you have in place to keep you going? Um, and how do you balance your life? Are you a CEO that's just all business all the time or you're like max eight hours and I got to spend the evenings with family sort of guy? How do you operate? I'll start with the latter question. Okay. When I started Lucid in 2010, we had recently moved to New Orleans. I had a uh, 18 month old daughter and my son was six months away. Mm -hmm. And so literally we started the company in like February and my son was born in June. Mm -hmm. And I took paternity leave, which freaked out the early team, of course. <laughs> right? um, and I had been a part of startups and professional environments where the work hours were intense and long. Okay. And I wanted to see if we could do something different in, in Louisiana, because if, you, if you've been down to Mardi Gras, if you've been down here, you know that the culture is a little bit different. Yeah. And the priorities of people down here are not about the number of hours you necessarily work, but really about the relationships that you build mm -hmm. and the community that you support. So my big question and my early kind of challenge was how do you marry the needs of a fast growing startup in terms of time and energy and, and output with the culture of Louisiana, of, of laissez-faire and Mardi Gras. Right. And so I made a commitment to myself that I would walk out of the office every day at 530, every single day. And for, I remember speaking to Christy Lucquart, just looked at me like I was crazy. 
all the stuff that needed to be done. I just walk out and go home. Now, sometimes I, of course, log back in. But over the years, that's actually decreased. And so most of my evenings are not spent on today's fire or, you know, evening situation, but more about uh, spending time with my family. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. What I've experienced several times is that a company's founder creates the amount of time the company needs from them. So if as a founder, you're going to spend 100 hours a week building the business, then all the systems, all the expectations, all the processes that you've built around you requires that 100 hours from you. Mm -hmm. And then as it gets bigger and uh, more embedded, it's harder to shake that because that's what that's the situation. Now, you may love that. Go for it. Right. Right. But you also may burn yourself out. Yeah. So I'm no longer a believer that you've got to burn the midnight oil to build a fast growing, highly valuable startup wherever you may be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was just taking some notes here. I'm not checking my phone. Just <laughs> no worries. You can check your phone too, man. No, no, no. Um, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. So it was really that cultural shift that I was trying to experiment with. And I've got to be honest, this company still takes Mardi Gras off. And the rest of the world has no idea when Mardi Gras day is, right? Right. And yet our team still does it because here Mardi Gras is important, not just because it's a day off, but it's part of the cultural ebb and flow and rhythm of the city. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I like how you said that. I don't know if this is the exact quote, but you said a company's founder creates the culture of the time that the company can rely on the founder or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. basically the company will form around you. Right. And that part of what it's forming around is the values and its culture, but also the time required from the founder to do whatever the business is doing. Are you, so you're taking it roughly just kind of have the policy to take off at 530 every day. Yeah. When are you coming in? And um, well, these days I usually get in around eight, whatever that means. It's hard to know what these things mean anymore to an office given the pandemic scenarios. COVID, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I drive my kids into school every single day okay. and uh, drop them off. And then most days I have a phone call starting at 8 a.m. So it's mm -hmm. like 8 to 5.30. So you get your eight, also, eight hours in every day. But I'm also taking snippet time, uh, uh, especially during COVID, take lunch uh, with my wife. And then we've also been working out during uh, lunch hours as well. So there's a good four hour kind of chunk in the morning and good four plus hours in the, in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty much there. Right. Do you have challenges bringing home, uh, bringing work home with you? You said you mentioned you used to sometimes log in when you got home. Um, I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs burn out. This is probably why many entrepreneurs can't make the 11, 10, 11 year mark um, because they're, they're so invested emotionally into their business. They can't separate themselves from it. Um, uh, you know, and you had that solid 530 mark. I'm going home. I'm going to spend time with my family for the yep. most part. Yep. Um, do you, when you get home, is it easy to separate the two? Is it easy to say, okay, this is family time? It was easier when there was a commute. I could have the downtime to say 45 minutes to let the days, whatever, flow decompress, through. Decompress, yeah. Decompress. Now I mainly work out of my garage. And so, you know, the the two-minute walk from my garage to the house is a long <laughs> enough time. To, so I find myself, it's one of my frustrations is my son or daughter are, are trying to communicate with me or show me and I want, but then that thing, whatever it is, is still on my mind that I haven't really left. Um, 
So it, it's always a challenge. And I would say that as the company has gotten bigger, the, the size and scale of the issues, positive and negative, um, are just bigger. Right. Yeah. And so they can be weigh um, as heavily as some of the startup issues were, which may have been, seemed quite small at the time, but were heavy in terms of the potential you know, impact to the business. Yeah. Interesting. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't building Lucid, what would you be doing? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, I've spent like so long building businesses. It's like literally the thing that I do. Right. right. So I'd, if I weren't doing Lucid, I'd be building someone else's company with them. Right. I'd be, I'd be involved with something else. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have taken to uh, over the past four years or so taken to beekeeping. So that's one of my favorite pastimes because it requires as much or as little time as you would like to, <laughs> to work with bees. And so it's a good, uh, it's a good habit to take on because I can leave them for months on end and it'll be fine. Or I can visit them daily and, and engage. That's a great way to get out of the work mindset. Go surround yourself with a bunch of bees. Like you're not going to oh, be yeah. thinking about anything else. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, bees are cool too. And they make honey and my friends make mead. So there's a lot of benefits as well. Ah, very cool. Very cool. What else would you like to share about Lucid and what you guys have going on? Anything in particular? Um, one thing I've noticed over the years is how, uh, especially from an entrepreneurial mindset, most founders don't understand how much research or data collection they can do about their target market or audience early on. It's mm -hmm. starting to click in around UX design and research where early in a, a company's uh, lifespan, they're actually speaking to potential customers at scale. Okay. And when I explain to founders that you can literally talk to anyone on the planet right now about any topic at scale and for relatively inexpensive kind of cost points, suddenly the light bulb goes out is that they don't just have to have a vision, they can measure their vision or they can understand whether or not their product's going to be engaging for their target audience or target customer. Okay. And so we're starting to see how, what we would call research, but it's really asking who your, your customer, who you think they will be, what they like or dislike about your product, your ideas, your vision, getting that feedback early and often is a way for um, executives and founders today to be extraordinarily competitive. competitive. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, just a valuable th knowledge to have, to help people get, you know, for so long, so many companies just do not do that, get into the minds of their customers and competitors and understand what's working, what's not working, what makes them tick. Um, what are, well, even today it's happening with the, in terms of podcasts where, yeah you may not have a firm understanding of who your audience is, what they think about your shows or your themes, mm -hmm. how they're increasing or growing because you have no reasonable way to ask them questions. I know, yeah. And so, so literally that's Lucid's job is to provide access to your audience so you can learn A, who they are, mm -hmm. but also B, engage with them on how to develop the, the product and content that you are providing. Yeah, that's incredible. What I love about this concept is, is that you guys I mean, you're not doing the research yourself, right? You're no, going out the research. Yes, exactly. So we interviewed Richard Koch, who's the author of the 80-20 principle recently. And in his new updated version of that book, I don't know if you ever read that book, but I'm sure you know I the concept. Not. I do um, know the principle, yeah. Yeah. So in his, his updated version, he thinks anybody that would start a business that's not a network 
type of business is crazy in today's day and age. So this is what you guys are doing. You're yep. taking A and B and putting them together. And because you put them together, you've provide this great platform to do it and make it easier for A and B. And then there's a massive amount of people that want to come your way because you've made that easier. You know, the same as um, Uber, same thing. A and B, they're putting Uber, to, right? There's a platform, there's an app, go there, it makes it easy. A, uh, you know, the driver and uh, the passenger get connected just like that. Uber's a, a multi-billion dollar company that doesn't make any money, but I'm, I'm guessing you guys make some money, you're profitable. We and, do, yes. Okay, good, <laughs> good. Um, but I think it's genius and we're going to see more and more of these as time goes on because um, it's kind of like being the middleman is the best option now. Being the person, and, and I don't mean that in a disrespective way, but like oh, this, yeah. what Lucid has done um, is making it easier for these two parties to connect in order to understand how they can you know grow their own companies, right? Well, um, it's it's a powerful it's a hard challenge mm-hmm. building a two-sided marketplace with mm-hmm. network effects embedded in of any industry of any type is a challenge because right. you have to figure out how to solve the chicken the egg what comes first supplier demand how do you how do you get that flywheel actually moving out of the gate right um, and what's been interesting is to see flywheels built atop of flywheels so you know, it's almost normal. We don't even talk about it, the fact that uh, Lucid runs on AWS as an example, mm-hmm. which is its own marketplace and flywheel. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I'm really trying to say is the number of network effect driven businesses that are possible is also growing. So from an entrepreneurial optionality standpoint, the number of opportunities is scaling even faster now than it was before, because mm-hmm. all the infrastructure that you need to build a business or connect with your customers or research or all these things that you would need that used to be slow and challenging are now also network effect. They're also marketplaces. Right. So the, the whole process of all the functions of the business are being um, stripped down essentially to APIs and processes that anyone can use to build all these new types of services. Yeah. So it's exciting to start companies now because the, the barrier to entry to start smaller than it's ever been. The opportunities are only scaling, not shrinking. Mm-hmm. And your ability to get support and help is at an all-time high. I mean, when I first got into entrepreneurship, if you went in, you know, the turn of millennium, if you bought Entrepreneur Magazine, it was about franchising, uh-huh. right? Right. And so, in twenty years, the word entrepreneur has now dramatically shifted in terms of expectations of what you can do. And the support around you and the knowledge sharing, like this podcast, an example, is a part of that support infrastructure for the founder that never existed before. Yeah. Being that what you guys have went through in the pandemic in the past year, um, do you think so? You know, we've interviewed a lot of uh, companies that are remote companies that do not yeah. have offices, employees around the world. And you've went in the past year really to kind of having those offices, having a large, massive team all around the world to people not going into the office. What have you learned from this new model having to operate like this? And do you think you'll continue to operate without those offices? I'll say the first thing I really learned, I think we all learned is a level of compassion and empathy for each other. Okay. Um, it's hard not to be human beings when your kids and dogs are on your lap during calls, right? It's so suddenly <laughs> yeah, it went from a more true, yeah. formal professional environment to, you know, I've got to go, you know, 
chased my cat just left out, you know, it got outside, right? <laughs> we all became very human, right? right? And as I was talking to our customers and, and employees and teams globally, no one escaped. It wasn't like there was a part of the world that got off scot-free from the pandemic, right? Everyone right. is in this together. And now it's different, different scale, but it's the same or similar experience. We were challenged as a company trying to become more global. Mm-hmm. And the one of the many silver linings of the pandemic around being a forced remote environment is we became a decentralized global company literally overnight. Right. Where whether or not you were in an office, a state or country or place was utterly irrelevant to your ability to perform. Yeah. And we've been trying to achieve this result because what happens in offices is those who are in the office have a different experience around communication, decision-making, authority, whatever it may be. So uh, COVID just blew up the office model. And for us, the benefit was we were all equally remote everywhere. Yeah. Now, as in the U.S., the, the vaccination rate continues to expand. I think people are getting more comfortable with the concept of going back to an office. I asked the question myself, are we all supposed to be together in the same place like we were before for X many hours a week? I've grown accustomed to like a new routine, right? I get to yeah. work out at, you know, 1230, you know, three times a week, which is fantastic. Do I want to now re how do I want to readjust the balance between remote and office? Yeah. But also talent. I'm sure you've heard this several times. The world is our talent pool. Now, if you don't have a bias towards place, you can hire from anywhere. Yeah. Now, the caps to that rule is so can everyone else. Yeah. And from you as well. So the talent, the competition for talent has only scaled up in the past year as well. Yeah. So what do you think you guys will do? You think you'll you'll lean towards staying more remote or Oh, I'm sure my chief people officer would would uh, reprimand me for giving an exact answer. Since we don't know is the clear thing, but let me give you some of the things that go across my brain. Right, one is it's been good to give people the flexibility to be remote. Right, and I don't want to, especially those who are not anywhere near one of our offices. I'll put those in air quotes. Um, I don't want that experience to be diminished because a lot of us are now every day coming into a room that you can't get access to. Yeah, right. Um, at the same time, there are just certain parts of work that are better in person besides just seeing each other, which is glorious when you get to see people, especially those you haven't seen in a while. But things like brainstorming and some of the engagement you can do, ideation, some of the meetings that you can have are just more compelling in person than ever be remote. Yeah. So the, the question for me is not an either or scenario. We're going to all remain fully remote or everyone comes back to an office. It's more... How do we strike the right balance of needs of the company and needs of the individual um, so that we can continue to really bring on talent globally successfully, um, but also have those special in-person moments that are beautiful from how they drive the business forward. But let's be honest, we're all human beings. Being together is wonderful. Yeah. And a lot of people thrive on the social environment of the in-person office and they, like many of us, miss it. I don't yeah. know what the right balance is. I'd be lying if I told you I had the answer, but what I will be leading is a path to get to strike that right balance between the two. Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting because 
I think like I've talked to a lot of remote companies and, and a lot of times they'll miss the in-person stuff. They'll crave it and they'll think, oh, you know, maybe this is a time we should now start to do in-person offices and in-person events on a regular basis. And then vice versa, of course, you know, everybody's so many people have worked in office and the yep. flexibility to work from home and, you know, exercise in the afternoon and do laundry while you work is Pretty, laundry pretty, while I work is pretty good. nice for a lot of yeah, people. I bet. Yeah. Um, I've just now experienced the equalization, the democratization of a meeting when everyone is remote at once. Mm -hmm. No, no people are in a room. Right. I've also experienced where I'm the remote person and there are six people in a room and that's, that's not as good. Right. Right. So it's almost like everyone should be there. Or everyone should not be there physically as it were. It's yeah. the, so how to not make combo hybrid even worse than either or is one yeah. of the key challenges as well. Right? Well, maybe three days in, two days out or vice versa, two days, three days out, but something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of, what I do know is there's going to be lots of experimentation on this, uh -huh. right? Over the next couple of years. Yep. And I'm sure lots of opinions will be formed in different companies doing different things based on what, you know. And you'll have a lot of case studies to use as examples. As oh, well. sure. Yeah. I'm sure. We won't argue at all about what was the right thing. To do, so. <laughs> Excellent. Any other, Patrick, any other tips as a high-performing entrepreneur? Um, what, what time do you wake up in the morning? You wake up the same time every morning? Um, so I'm a creature of habits. My one tip is not which habit of mine should you take on, uh -huh. but I'm a now a believer in habit forming. Uh -huh. and being intentional about, okay, if I form this habit, I can repeat it over time. It's a value add for X, Y, Z reason. Absolutely. So I don't spend a lot of time trying to copy what other people do, uh -huh. except, but because I don't think necessarily what I do will fit for you or vice versa, right. but it's really, uh, I love habits. I love being intentional about forming them, building a habit over time and watching the results come in over, over repetition. How do you specifically build a habit? Um, I think the, the biggest thing is identify what it is that I want to achieve and visualize the, the outcome or the change. Um, and then literally, what's the first step? I think I often get overwhelmed with doing it all. Yeah. Even, even before this podcast, uh, I have a project that I'm working on that I'm overwhelmed by because it's so big. And I just broke it down to, all right, what's the first step? What's the smallest first step that I need to achieve? Right. Um, with habits, I often... I'm a data analysis junkie. I run a research company, what can I say? So mm -hmm. if I can make it something that I can track via data and a chart and drive analysis from, then I just do it more often because I love looking at how it evolves over time. Right, I do too. Um, to, to, to track that, any specific habit, is there any platform that you use? You're like, do you make a spreadsheet and follow that? Or are you looking for certain apps that may be related to that habit? Just curious. Um, I often tend to just pull it into a spreadsheet because yeah. it's rare that the app has the level of analysis that I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I tend to find widgets, whether it's Zapier or some other way of, of pulling data into, into uh, spreadsheets and and then working my own little uh, analysis on it. So can, can you give us a, an example of a, a habit that you did that with? Because I think a lot of people not to pry into the habits that you create, but I think people could be inspired by that. And one of the reasons why goals usually fail is because people don't have some sort of accountability and tracking system that they can see progress with. Well, I always say the biggest first step is not achieving the goal, mm -hmm. but starting the tracking. It's right. like in the business, right? 
if you you can set all the goals you want to, but if you don't know a way to track and measure against progress, mm-hmm. you, what are you even doing? Right. So it's the same thing in my own personal habits. The first step can often literally be, how am I going to track it? Am I tracking the right thing? So a simple one is like weight, right? That's something people obsess over or not obsess over, right? right. But if I can step on a scale every morning, even if I have no goal, right? There's no objective, just uh-huh. measure the thing, right? If I can, if I can step on a scale that will then send to a spreadsheet, the actual weight number for the day. And just what, one thing I've often said in, um, in an organization, the human behavior is that if you just show people the number, they will start behaving to move the number in various ways. Mm-hmm. For example, with sales, sometimes you can set goals and targets and quotas, but if you just literally show every salesperson's number and quota delivery for the period, month or quarter or whatever, and just put it on the board, you don't even have to talk to it. Right. They will automatically start trying to move the number because we're creatures who want to see a number and then move and do something with it. Yeah. And so I just try to do the same thing with myself, which is if I just show myself the number, I may change my habit. And weight's a great example where people often want to lose weight. Even with no goal, if you just show yourself the number every day, that may inspire different behavioral choices throughout the day. So you, you don't move it in a different direction that you want to want to see, right? <laughs> so some of it's just measuring the thing versus actually setting or even achieving the goal. I love that. I love that. That's one of the reasons why I don't step on the scale every single day because it'll drive me nuts. If I, it'll drive you me nuts. Why? Yeah, I'm like, why? Am, why am I three pounds heavier? Why am I two? Yeah, yeah. Why I'm is like, it fluctuating? <laughs> What's happening to me? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do it because a it reminds me that I care and that maybe there are choices I can make during the day that would impact you know what I want. Mm-hmm. But it's just the habit, right? If I do it every time, then I'm creating the habit, and so every morning it's like you know ritual. Some people may call me boring or fastidious or no, I think that's genius. I think that's just, I think that's a start. It's like what gets measured gets managed. Right. I think that's that's the the rule. Yeah. yeah, Like the start of any goal is like, what's that number? What's that figure? And look at it on a regular basis. And how have you moved on a daily basis? We do this in the business all the time, which is not what should the number be, but can we measure it right now? And Mm -hmm. usually almost always the first answer is, I don't know. Let me find out. And then we figure out how to measure it. Then we look at the measure over time and say, what has it done? And then we set a target and goal, right? Yeah. And so it's the measuring for me that's important versus what, how you're setting goals and whether or not you're achieving them. So if you like have um, um, a goal in the company, you know, you, you first measure it and then you figure out, or if it's measurable and then you figure out um, how to measure it, how then do you... I, I would guess say hold the team accountable. Well, accountability, but we could talk an entire other podcast on accountability within <laughs> yeah. your teams, right? Okay. And I'll just start it by saying, typically I've been terrible at accountability. So I'm not the authority on how to hold people accountable. Okay. Um, but what I, what I have been learning to do is once there is a measurable goal is to have everyone that I work with in my management team share exactly what those goals are for themselves for the period, say the quarter. Mm-hmm. And because there is mutual understanding of what we're working against, A, we can help each other get to those outcomes, but we can hold ourselves accountable for as we move through the quarter, if we keep looking at those goals, why are we, or why not are we achieving them? Now, sometimes we don't achieve the goals because of outsized 
situations, right? It's not right. your fault the goals are achieved. It's COVID or whatever the answer is, right? right? Sometimes it is, but usually most of the time, it's not for lack of effort. It's not for lack of this or that, that the goal of the targets and achieved, it's because we did not understand how hard or what the real challenge was when we started. I like that. So I think, and this is, I'm sure there's lots of different arguments on this, is it's not necessarily about hitting or achieving the goal. It's, are we learning what impacts the goal along the way? What's yeah. really the root cause? And are we impacting that? Because like if that. I just hold you accountable for the target or the goal and then reprimand you or money or whatever the things are you give and take around accountability, we may achieve the result, which is more like winning the battle but losing the war. Mm -hmm. But once we start to realize we're not hitting, like what's actually going on? What's the root fundamental cause? And if we see what's going on there, we may fix a root cause, which unlocks a huge amount of growth. Yeah, we missed the target for the month or quarter. That's irrelevant. We found the actual solution, which is now going to drive growth for uh, and unlock success going down the road. Yeah. So it's this arts and science. It's like product development. Do you hit every quarter's product release schedule or not? And it's how much of it is going to be art and how much of this is going to be science. And balancing the two is like the nature of leadership in my in my book. I love that. I, I think that is a beautiful way to wrap up the podcast. That is an incredible <laughs> statement. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, I loved uh, this interview. I had a really good time and learned so Likewise, much from the show. Um, if the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you guys have going on over at Lucid or connecting with you, uh, what's the best place they can do that at? Sure. Personally, my Twitter handle is Comer Patrick. Very straightforward. And then our website is a URL hack, which means it's luc.id. Yes. So luc.id is our URL hack. So, um, Come check out our products and services if you think they might be interesting. I think that's a great brand name too, Lucid. Like, and, and there's a whole story of how uh, our head of marketing uh, stayed up very, very late one night to get an Indonesia three-letter uh, uh, URL back in the day. So, <laughs> Was he uh, lucid dreaming while it happened? I, I sure hope so. <laughs> cool. Well, Patrick, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure, Chris. Onward. Take care of yourself. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And... We'll see you all on the next episode.